So we're continuing our series in the book of Judges, and to be honest, this was my least favorite passage that I chose. Um, just because it's dark, it's difficult. Um, I don't know how many of you have actually heard a sermon on this text, um, but I felt like it continues this concept of looking at the book of Judges as a mirror into our world as we see the, the difficulty and sinfulness within our world as, as the Israelites continue down this path of sin and then as to the leadership themselves within, leader, uh, within Israel continues down a path of sin. And so the story begins kind of the same way all of the other ones have. With a verse uh, would be from chapter 10. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, it continues on the next verse, that he gave them into the hands of. So this is the same kind of verse, the same type of phrasing that we've seen in all the other ones, except I think I see here there's a few more gods listed, aren't there? Before, in all the other verses, it was that they served the Baals and the Asheroths, and, and now Israel is serving multiple and, and more gods, and there's actually a, a full list of them here. In the story of Gideon, Gideon says uh, to the, the angel, the Lord has forsaken us, and this is why this has happened. But here it says the Israelites have forsaken the Lord and no longer served him. It's the Israelites who are abandoning God. Within Scripture, the number seven is often referred to as having a meaning of completion. We see it. In the book of Genesis, as the Lord created in six days and rested on the seventh because it was complete. We see it too, maybe in the story of Naaman, which we looked at, I don't remember how long ago, but Elisha, uh, Elisha told Naaman to wash himself seven times for complete healing. And, and here we see seven in a different ways. The Baals, the Asheroths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Seven different gods showing the complete and utter idolatry of the people of Israel. They've completely abandoned and forsaken the Lord, no longer serving. So the Lord raises up a judge like he's done so in the past, but this guy's probably not the best. He maybe wouldn't be one that we'd want to model our life after. This, this guy was born of adultery, and he was despised by his own brothers, and his own brothers said, because you have a different mother, you're not going to get an inheritance from our father, and they kind of pushed him away, kicking him out of the family. And he flees from his brothers, and in, in chapter 11, verse 3, it says that worthless men surrounded Jephthah. 
worthless fellows collected around him. And though he was despised and and rejected, and, and though worthless fellows gathered around him, the Lord says, this is the person that I'm going to use. So we begin today's passage starting at verse 29 of of the book of Judges in chapter 11, and that'll be on page 200 in those black Bibles if you got them, or that will be on page 229 in uh, the student Bibles, kids, if you brought those with you. All right, so let's begin this. Logan, if you can uh, go through the slides with me. So Jephthah went with the, let me make sure, nope, that's not where I wanted, 29, there we go. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead. From there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Manith, as far as abel Karamim. This Israel subdued Ammonon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you have promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept, because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the tradition that each year, The young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. You can kind of see how that's a hard passage. It's a story that we could say is dark. It's It's a story where we see significant action, I think. We see the the leader of Israel, the judge that God called, the Savior is significantly out of touch with the Lord. If we go back to this beginning section, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And and even though the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and The Lord had essentially promised him victory earlier on. He makes this this terrible and tragic vow. And then he'll end up going through with it. 
as it said in, I think, verse 39, that he did to his daughter as he said, creates this uncomfortable tension. How can someone who is clothed with the Spirit of God, who is endowed with God's presence upon him to fulfill a task, make such a terrible vow? How can someone who knows the Lord and has followed the Lord, perhaps, and make this vow that surely would disappoint the Lord? And it creates this just uncomfortable feeling within my soul as I look at this passage. How can someone clothed with God's power do that? It's something that's so difficult that Mindy and I talked about this passage and she would send me article after article about this, this one interpretation, this way that you could view the passage where the daughter doesn't die. And it was the idea that, well, then the Lord, instead of him sacrificing it as a burnt offering like he said he would, maybe since it was his daughter, instead he, he gave her to the Lord for like service in the temple. And I kept coming back to her saying, yeah, but I mean, if with any interpretation of Scripture, we have to look at what else is there and what are the other difficulties that arise, even though we'd really like it for her not to die. We see that he did to her as he had vowed. And, and if she was just in service to the temple, then why would the young women of Israel weep over her for four days every year? Why would he tear his clothes and, and say, you've brought me down low? And as some of the other commentaries write, they say we should not attribute to Jephthah some type of great piety that reflects the way we would like to think of him rather than what the text actually shows of who Jephthah is. So it continues that tension. How does someone with the Holy Spirit do such things? Well, I think it says that here, the, the clothing of the Holy Spirit upon the person does not remove the personality and the choices and, and the things that that individual would do. God does not all of a sudden change your mind and your chemistry of your brain and somehow now control you. No, the, the Spirit endows the person and they still will experience ramifications for all the, the choices that they make. And I think as Gerard uh, preaches next week, we'll probably likely see, I haven't read his sermon, but we'll likely see how that continues where the person of Samson was too endowed with the Spirit and then goes on to, to make choices that, are not necessarily the best and not necessarily something that we think 
he should make. The second tension with this passage has to do with the vow that he makes again and how it gives off this appearance of of piety. It gives off this appearance that, well, surely Jephthah knows the Lord and he he wants to follow the Lord. He's making this vow to to give an offering to the Lord if, if he wins the battle. We see that in verses 30 and 31. He vowed to the Lord, if, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of my door, I will offer as a, a I will sacrifice it and offer it, offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. It's, it appears like it's a holy desire, wanting to, to honor God. But in reality, it's manipulation in the form of piety. It's Jephthah trying to manipulate the situation in a way where he will get what he wants to to make the circumstances go into his favor. Maybe you've heard people do things like that. God, if, if you do this for me, I promise I will do that for you. God, if, if you just let the Lions win the Super Bowl, all five of my children will become pastors. I actually don't like the Lions, so I surely would not pray that. <laughs> I heard that. Uh, Lord, if, if you give me this promotion and, and I make this much more money, I promise I will give more than 10% back to you. God, if, if you do this, I will surely devote the rest of my life in service to you and your kingdom. It's these types of vows, these types of promises where we give off the, the, the sense of piety like we're following God, but yet we're only giving that so we can gain something else in return. We're only making these vows so that we can, can have some type of advantage, perhaps, on our side. In the case of Jephthah, he's pretty vague with his vow. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return. Whatever. It makes us think, what what did he think was going to come out of his house? Now, for us, we don't typically have animals living in our house unless it's like a cat or a dog or some people, a bunny. Um, I don't know if anyone has chickens or goats or anything like that in their house. Probably not. Well, in a typical four-room Israelite house, you would have animals living in one of the rooms. That was really normal. So whatever comes out of my house isn't just an assumption that it's going to be a person because there are animals that would potentially live in his four-room house. So that sounds like it sounds like it would be fine, but there's, there's no qualification that he makes saying whatever animal comes out of my house, I will surely sacrifice it as a burnt offering to the Lord. Which brings more tension. And it also shows how 
out of touch he is with the Lord as we move further. And the sad thing about this vow that interrupts this passage where he's going to go against the Ammonites and the Lord has already promised the victory and and that he's going to go on and provide the victory is that this vow just sits as a heavy weight in the passage demanding attention. That as we read the passage, as we read of the victory of the Lord, our hearts are not overjoyed by the Lord, but we wonder what is going to come out of his house. The tension in this passage means that the victory of the Lord is completely overshadowed by this vow that Jephthah has made. And as we we read, when he returned to his home, who who should come and meet him but his daughter? And the tension. She comes out joyful that her father is returning home from battle. That God has secured him the victory and he could come home and and she's dancing. She doesn't even know that he's made this vow yet. And we see that she's his only daughter, only child. The victory of the Lord is completely overshadowed by us reading this. The victory and the, the passage is, is swallowed up within, within the sorrow within our hearts, in the, in the sorrow within Jephthah. You know, there's, I think, only one time where the Lord actually asked someone to consider giving up their son, her only son, Abraham. God calls to Abraham and he says, take Isaac, your son, your, your only son, and go to the mountain that I will show you and, and sacrifice him there. And, and so he follows and they build the altar and Isaac's like, well, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's like, yeah, you know, the Lord will provide one. And, and he goes and he ties his own son and, and he raises his hand, but then God calls from heaven and stops him. And so maybe we think, maybe we think and we, we so hope that that would be a part of this story where, where God would, would call down to Jephthah and, and stop him in his tracks and not fulfill this vow that he had made to the Lord. But just as God was silent and didn't ask Jephthah to make this vow, God is silent and allows him to go through with it. In the case of Jephthah, his following of God has been so tainted by the culture around him, by those seven gods that all of Israel had been worshiping, that that the practices of these other gods have have somehow been morphed and added into the worship of Yahweh. To where he thought that the same way that they would worship Molech, or the same way that they would worship Baal, the the same way they would sacrifice children to those gods, that that was something that was appropriate to do for Yahweh. And it 
And it just shows a little bit of ignorance because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read this command. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. God forbids it. He says, don't do those things. It's, it's not a sacrifice that is worthy to him. And, and maybe Jephthah knew the law, but he, he didn't put it in, into practice. He had, he had taken those cultural things and, and, and put them into this worship of Yahweh, knowing that if you make a vow, you have to go through with it, which is perhaps something that the Lord wants, but he's going through with this vow that is surely not a part of the way he wants his people to worship. So in arrogance, Jephthah tried to manipulate God to give himself the victory out of his own selfish ambition for maybe glory or, or whatever it is. And God did give the victory, but it wasn't because of the vow. It was because of God's compassion and his saving grace upon his people. And then Jephthah goes through with this terrible vow. No voice from heaven came to stop his hand. No one calling, stop, no goat in a thicket for him to sacrifice instead. And the only thing we're left with is this. Do to me as you promised. And so he did. I wonder, what does this passage invite us to consider in our life? Do we, do we ever consider how we maybe try to manipulate circumstances for our own benefit and how, how that manipulation of circumstances affects our life with the Lord as, as people like Jephthah who have been endowed with the Spirit for the work of God and yet are choosing perhaps paths that God does not desire us to choose. I think society has begun to work within people a, a desire to develop notions of somehow us deserving certain things, manipulating our minds to saying, I deserve. And, and that, that desire within our life to consider that we deserve to get something affects how we, we live among people, causing ourselves to, to choose to manipulate systems in order to give ourselves advantage or the good life. We could look back into the history of America and in the system of slavery as people would manipulate a system in order to gain something and gain an advantage. It allows us then to, to deal with people as we see fit. And the problem is when, when we begin to do that is, is we begin to see abuses within our world. 
as the, the image of God within people is pushed aside, and as we feel that we can treat individuals however we desire as a, a pawn to provide what we need. Allowing our selfish desires to come forward. We could perhaps see it in the same way as this passage as we see Jephthah essentially abusing his daughter with this vow. We could see the abuse of, of children within our world today. I think to even take it a step further, Jephthah's sacrifices of his daughter is the ultimate abuse. And I think it can be paralleled with modern-day abortion of sons and daughters. None of those sacrifices are done to the gods of Molech or Chemish or Baal. But perhaps, perhaps they do have a disregard for the image of God that is being formed within the womb. Scripture says that God created his people in his image, and the Psalms say that God is, is forming us within the womb of our very mothers. Yet today, instead of discussions around the image of God, there are discussions about when an embryo is human or at what point a fetus does or does not experience pain. We think of countless children who are being fearfully and wonderfully made for sacrifice. Some in the, in the name of the mother's health, but others in the name of convenience. When we minimize and reduce how we see the image of God, we become more and more comfortable manipulating lives for our own benefit. We perhaps could see it too in physician-assisted suicide, as some countries have chosen to allow that, as grandparents not wanting to be some financial burden on their family because of the the, the medical bills that would come with some diagnosis, or children not wanting their parents to experience this debilitating pain somehow push aside the image of God and welcome the idea of physician-assisted suicide for the benefit of not experiencing pain or for the benefit of not experiencing financial hardship. We perhaps have become more and more accustomed to, to manipulating. Manipulating the system because we feel like we deserve. I've worked so hard in my life, I deserve this. They're so young, and they deserve to to begin their life without being encumbered. Right now is not the right time. I deserve to make the choice. 
Grandpa doesn't deserve to live a life where he's in pain all the time. My kids don't deserve this financial hardship that will come through this situation because of me. We look at this passage. Jephthah's daughter didn't deserve to die. Perhaps Israel didn't deserve to be saved as they have completely and utterly left their God for seven other ones. And maybe we could say that we, we didn't necessarily deserve salvation ourselves because of the, the times that we've chosen to take upon ourselves in our life the, the gods and the values of America. Yet, God still sent someone. He sent a Savior that lived a very different way from the way the culture thought he should live. Jesus never uttered the phrase, I deserve. And yet, he didn't even get as he deserved. He would come to like Jephthah as this one who was despised and rejected by people. Yet he would not, he would not use his position of authority to, to manipulate the system, to, to sidestep something that would come his way. He wouldn't, wouldn't manipulate the world for his, his own advantage and his personal gain. Though he did not deserve to be betrayed, he was. Though he did not deserve to be punished, he was. And it was by his wounds that then we were healed. He did not deserve to, to go to the cross, but it was the cross that paved the way for his resurrection and his opportunity for us to experience life like we would have never experienced before, not because we deserved it, not because anyone really deserved it. He would willingly experience hardship and difficulty so that the ones that were made in the image of God, that's, that's you and me and all the, the children of God within this world would have the opportunity to experience that life. And then he invites us into this, this life where we see the image of God in others, not using our life and not having our life characterized by that phrase, I deserve, not having our life characterized by a manipulation and a taking on of, of the other gods and the values of society, but instead endowing us with the Spirit and, and desiring us to recall by the power of the Spirit the desires of God in our life. That we would love our God with all our strength and all our soul and all our mind, and we would love our neighbors, the ones who are created in the image of God, as ourselves. It's an invitation in our life to join with Christ, potentially giving to others as they do not deserve.
because we ourselves received life in Christ, something we never deserved. Let's pray and, and thank God for this gift of Christ who went through hardship and pain that we would experience life. Father, we thank you for Christ who humbled himself to, to come as a man, not, not using his position for personal gain, not using it for his own advantage, but yet humbling himself that he would take upon the cross for us, those who, who didn't deserve it. Lord, it was, it was you who took that step towards us to restore our relationship with you, and for that we are, we are so grateful. Our prayer is that you would work your spirit with, within us, that we would not follow the, the life of Jephthah of, of using situations for our own advantage, but yet instead we would, we would take on the image of Christ and, and the, the likeness of Christ within our life, that we would willingly sacrifice of ourselves for the benefit of others and the benefit of your kingdom. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.